Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm in Piermont with Matt. Hello. Hello. We are at the Streamtime studio. It's not really a studio. It's just a big desk, actually, that we, we sit at. There's a studio above us. There is a studio above us, yeah. Mm. But that's that's a design studio. Though. It's where the real people work. Yeah, when, when I say studio, it sounds like we've got this amazing recording studio, which, oh. which we don't. But we're here. We're here. Yeah. Wherever we are. <laughs> so, and we're here with Shannon Bell, who is the creative director of RE. Hello. Hello, guys. How hey, are you? Thanks for coming after work. It's no worries at all. You it's made a it. pleasure. We were just talking before. I'm reading that new Daniel Pink book, and uh, he talks about the different parts of the day where different things you should do. So you're really on in the morning, and then you have a slump, and then you kind of have a recovery. And, uh, and then he talks about different things you can do at those different points, like you know when to read your emails or you know do the administrative stuff. And he talks about uh, interviewing, uh, definitely like podcast interviews or anything like that, not to be done in the evening. And, Whoops. And here we are. <laughs> I actually took um, some steps to avoid being in a slump. Oh, really? Yeah. I was really conscious of it because it's, I'm super prone to just like losing my energy and having nothing to give. So I, met, I rode my bike here. Um, it was extremely up. tough. There's a massive hill on the way to Piermont. Who knew? I didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little bit of traffic um, at this yeah, hour as well. Yeah. And when you don't know exactly the way you're going on your bike, there's like some really serious, quite heavy traffic roads that you're like, holy shit, I shouldn't have come this way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually pretty pumped after that. Good. Cool. <laughs> and you came from Ree, which is in Surrey Hills. Yeah, we're in Redfern now. We've just, oh, Redfern, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, of course it is, yeah. Um, we've just moved to, well, not just moved, it's been about a year. Um, oh, wow. We've kind of broken, not broken ties, but moved out of the MNC Saatchi office in Macquarie Street and we've got our own studio that feels like a real design studio for the first time probably ever. It's amazing. It's gorgeous. Real design studio. Talk. Talk to us more about what that means. You know when you close your eyes and you imagine what you want your design studio to look like? Yep. It's, it's almost exactly like that. I see me. a lot of bikes. There are bikes. There are bikes everywhere. Mm. Um, no, no computers just... in my fantasy. I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it's just a really beautiful open warehouse kind of space, you know, with lots of different places to work. Yeah, and from where we were before, which was very cramped together, very set desks with lots of dividers and in an office with lots of other kind of businesses as well that were quite corporate, just didn't ever feel like we could really kind of spread out and be the kind of studio that we wanted to be. So everyone's just super stoked to be there mm. and the vibe is really good. Creatives just being creative. Just being creative, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do this bio. Currently creative director of RE, the branding agency within MNC Saatchi. You're known for your branding, particularly naming and verbal branding. You joined MNC Saatchi in 2013 as a senior writer and you've got over 15 years experience in copywriting before that. You're working with clients such as Landor, Ogilvy, Sydney Opera House, Jalik, which I want to ask about, the Cancer Council, the ABC and Mervac, amongst many, many others. You've also won two DNAD pencils for Hidden Characters and Uniting. The, probably the biggest thing that you, you're maybe not aware of is you're one of the front runners in our online survey for who we should talk to. I am actually aware of that. (laughs) 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 Because funnily enough, I think we had a conversation six months ago about how I should come on 
the, the, the show yep. and um, it never kind of we never picked it up and then about two weeks ago one of the strategists is like Shannon you should go on this show you really should you'll be really good um, I'll put a survey out for you know everyone at work's going to fill it in we're going to totally rig it we're going to get you know da 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 and I was like oh so now I have to win a competition to go on that show I was going to go on six months ago <laughs> and it turned into this big deal and then I wasn't winning anyway so we kind of um Kind of dropped it, and well, yeah, I, here I am. I just like the fact that you were on there twice. <laughs> yeah. on, on the two slightly different, differently spelled. It, it was great. It was great for us because there was a there's a lot of names on there that we that we didn't know, and then it was also oh yeah, Shannon Bell. Yeah, we yeah. totally should have had, had her on about six on. months ago. <laughs> let's let's start there. And I'd also like to point out that it's not a competition. It's about crowdsourcing some new names. Of course it is. Yeah. But you know. Yeah, but it's it's a competition. It's a competition to yeah. everybody that's on there, and, isn't it? And I won it. So. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are. Here we are. Yeah. No pressure. No. God. So is it now a good time to say thank you to Streamtime because yeah, obviously without their help and their support, we couldn't be doing what we're doing at the moment, uh, using our new kit. So hopefully we sound really nice. We've we've actually got two stands with these really heavy microphones so um we were quite surprised how heavy they were i've given the, you actually holding yours today for i haven't been able to go to the gym in the last couple of weeks so this is this is really can, useful can you not move it away? Uh, yeah sorry about that <laughs> right back to you you've been credited by campaign brief as building the verbal identity department at re from the ground up verbal identity can you give us an elevator pitch of what it is and and why people need it i sure can <laughs> um, it's an interesting one because when I first started in branding, I didn't have any idea what verbal identity was and neither did anyone else at RE, I would say. So I started at RE probably around four years ago and when I started there, there was about, it was probably about a group of 10 people and eight of those were designers. And the creative director at the time, I remember, fought quite hard to get a copywriter to come in and work with a branding agency because it wasn't really the done thing the designers kind of wrote the copy themselves and it was right. just writing, you know, cute headlines and things that made their designs look really good. And now looking back, it's kind of ridiculous that you would have a branding agency that focused on visual design only, kind of put to the side all the verbal communication, which is actually a massive part of how brands get their messages across to people. Obviously, I started there. It started with just writing cool headlines for executions and applications um, and it evolved a little bit to I did a lot of writing rationales for things and writing award entries for people because we didn't really know how to use a, what verbal identity was and how to use it and it kind of evolved from there I guess we had a couple of big branding projects like the first Optus rebrand that we did yep. we worked very closely Commonwealth Bank was another retained client of MNC and it just kind of the more and more jobs fell to re to, to do this thing called verbal identity which is basically coming up with principles for how an organization can talk to its customers guidelines right. that enable them to kind of have this consistent voice in market that enables anyone that wants to write for the brand to kind of pick up and sound like the brand and obviously the the kind of the really great thing for me working with Re was because they only had one writer. So it meant that I could work really closely with all the designers on all the different projects and be really involved and kind of find ways that we could use language to kind of add value to the branding system or add value to the client to help them kind of create this brand that lived in market that could actually communicate in the way that it needed to communicate. Yeah. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. So in, in one way, is it, is it almost like a style guide for for how the company conducts itself uh, it, after they've got the identity? It can be. It's a lot, it, 
I mean, as kind of re has evolved, it's grown a lot in the last four years. So we've grown from like 10 people to about 50 people mm. now. And the way that Verbal Identity works now is that we've got a really big team of strategists. Okay, really big. Like, I'm going to say six or seven strategists who will kind of when we do branding from like the ground up work with the client to define you know the strategy for the brand which also reconciles to a personality of you know sometimes if this brand was a person who would it be or if the what values does this brand or principles does this brand kind of champion and hold dear and then they will be translated into writing guidelines and principles that enable people to write in that personality. So it's really closely tied to the strategy. And then by the same token, the designers will then take that strategy and say, okay, how does the brand look? How does it feel? How does it move? All those different elements of branding. So we work really closely together. Before I was creative director, I obviously worked really closely with both the strategists and the designers to make sure that this brand we've created had this holistic personality that was expressed through every kind of sense, if you like. Is it happening in tandem with, say, typical identity design or is it a separate thing altogether? You know, it's, it's different for every project. Ideally, yep. it's happening in tandem. Ideally, the, what I always try to kind of encourage everybody, at, all the creatives at RE to do is that when you start a project, you've got a designer and you've got a copywriter and you've got a strategist and everybody's working together. It's not a matter of here's the designers and we sit down and work out how this visual system works and then the copywriter comes in and puts some headlines on it, which yeah. still happens, don't get me wrong. But I think when you follow that way of designing a brand, you end up with a system that might look beautiful but actually isn't equipped to communicate the sorts of messages that the brand needs to communicate in the way it needs to communicate. Because it's very easy to design applications in space. It's very easy, right? And you can make them really gorgeous. But when you actually have to communicate a message about a product or about a brand or whatever, you need a system that can work with language and where the visuals and the verbal system work together kind of seamlessly. Yeah, I'm thinking about some of the examples that you use, um, something like that's customer-facing packaging for Optus, for example, mm. compared to what a terms and conditions document might need to look like Completely. for someone to play the English Premier League on their yeah, TV yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah. And just the differences between that type of content, because mm. no designer is designing that terms and conditions document. We're designing, <laughs> we're designing what the app might look mm. like, <laughs> the packaging and maybe some cool signage. Right? Um, but yeah, so I would imagine yeah, bringing in that long-form copy as well it's funny that you would important. mention that because we have like quite an obviously a very long and ongoing relationship with Optus and often in terms of discovering how the brand comes to life, we will do things like the terms and conditions documents or the instruction manuals or the, you know, internal kind of comms booklets or these little applications that actually show best practice for the brand but are also, you know, beautiful uh, examples of how the brand can live. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's almost like jumping in the deep end with the, you know, some of the harder harder things to make uh, look good and read good and feel good to yeah. the reader. Um, and I don't want to bang on about Optus, but that's one of the good things about working with the brand. Mm. I was talking to a designer the other day and she was saying there are some designers who love the sell of design, you know, the pitch, designing what a brand would look like, you know, building that thing from scratch. And then there are other designers who like to nurture the brand and evolve the brand and make sure the brand can actually be this practical tool that people can pick up from an internal design team and use. And if there are challenges, then how does the brand need to evolve? And that's the relationship we have with Optus where we can kind of continually fine tune and change elements of the brand to make sure that it kind of looks great all the time. Yeah, I've kind of got a follow-up question about that. Like okay. often you, not you, but people, designers, create this sort of beautiful 
beautiful brand and we think, oh, it's going to look great. Here it is. And then you give it and then five years later, three years later, you sort of think, oh, what have they done with it? Um, that can be hard enough when there's an internal design team. What's that experience like with, with copywriting and language? Do you find there's often, do you have a counterpart that's internal that uh, understands, talks your talk? Or oh. are you handing it off to an account manager who has many other things they need to think about? Oh, that's an interesting question. I find, do you mean like, okay, we create a brand and then five years later we see it in market and it's not what we, it's, it's just gone off the rails and it looks awful and they haven't used the system correctly. Right. I've, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. But I, I guess more in regards to the verbal branding and the, and the copy. I mean, I, half of my job is not making sure people write on brand. It's making sure people write well. Half the challenge mm, right. with writing is, I always say this when we do brand training on language, that more than half the challenge is just write well. That's it. Communicate well. Have a single message. Be succinct. Be compelling. All those things. And then the last little bit is, oh, you know what? Here are some principles to make sure that it, sound, it feels Optus or it feels Combank or whatever it needs to feel. And you see poor writing all the time because right. everybody can write. Everybody learns to write. Everybody thinks they can write. Not everybody can pick up InDesign and, and work how it works. Like, mm-hmm. I certainly can't, right? Mm. So you can't just hand that over to any old Joe. But often copy gets handed over to the account manager or somebody internally or this person who's the business head for that whatever and it's just poor communication so i see that all the time right all the time and actually seeing good copy i would say is a rarity it's an incredible shame because it's a massive missed opportunity for brands to invest more in how they communicate with people Mm. just talking more about because you're you're also known for your naming and i was interested whether there's any crossover between verbal and naming Oh, and, massive. And yeah, from we what do. you've said, it sounds yeah. like there really is. We, naming, we always say, is, is the hardest thing you can do for a company. Right. Naming, it's so difficult. You do all this work, all this strategy, all this thinking, and the output is one word. And yeah. if the client hates that one word... 50,000 bucks. They hate, your, they hate you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I've, like, and I mean, at RE, we are getting so much better at it because it's all about the sell. It's about setting up expectations yep. with the client of what they're going to see. It's about taking them on the journey with you. It's about giving them confidence that you have explored every single avenue and this is the best name for your business. And it's about doing your due diligence to make sure that it's legally going to be available to people. Because, I mean, once upon a time you could name things anything you wanted. You just pick a word and that was awesome and great. That's a really clever idea. Nowadays, trademarking a name is almost impossible Mm. Um, so you have to be much more creative which makes names much harder to sell into clients what i would it's a bit of a minefield is it is that part of the reason why we i mean we're seeing feels like there's a bit of a a theme of lots of uh, new new words yeah it's exactly why completely why we recently named a um, software platform and we had just one slide up in the presentation that showed the client the their competitors and there was about 500 names on a slide with logos everywhere. So if you wanted to go with a descriptive name, because it was, it's yeah. quite a um, conservative <laughs> company. Right. So if you wanted to go with a descriptive name, which is very easy to sell into people, you're stuffed. You can't. You cannot. Because it's trademarked in every market and every class yep. that, that you want to trademark in. So you have to be able to sell in a name that, like Bloggle or something yeah. that's going to let them, um, get them get them the trademark. There's obviously loads of minuses with that. I mean, the plus is that we're easy to get the trademark, but the minuses are you have to train your audience in what what Bloggle actually means. Yeah, completely. You have to build equity into the name because 
it doesn't sell its, it, the name can't sell the product in and of itself. But I think that there are benefits to that because a name would never live. A name, this is what we always say to our clients, a name never lives in isolation. Yep. It's always surrounded by other aspects, like whether that's even the description of what it is on the app store or it's the identity or it's a strap line or it's something that gives that name context. And I think if you're going to sell any product, you need to build a certain amount of equity and interest into the name. So and that's where verbal branding comes in. Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. As we kind of get further along perfecting our naming process, we are working much more closely and actually getting in the spirit of making sure the design and copy work very closely together, getting the designers on board to brainstorm the names because bringing them along on the journey mm -hmm. is as much a challenge as bringing challenge is much is as important <laughs> as bringing the clients along because it's them that is going to have to you know create the logo design the the identity that goes around that name and if they're bought in to it then that makes that a whole lot easier i want to go back to you a little bit again uh, you studied at the university of wollongong i did is that where you're from no i'm actually from rural new south wales a town called young um, which is the cherry capital of australia yep. yeah i chose Wollongong to study because it was a nice kind of safe step towards moving to the city. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it felt very like uh, non-threatening at the time and also because they were the only university that had a creative writing degree on offer and I studied very, very, very hard for my HSC and I decided I never ever wanted to sit another test in my life again. <laughs> like I did really yeah. well, but I was like, I'm done. That's not me. I can't <laughs> do another test. And the only thing you needed to get into creative writing was a folio. So I did my folio and I got in. A, a presumably a writing folio. Yeah, right? it was, but it was creative writing in the sense of poetry and short stories and prose. It was oh. not focused at all towards having a career as a writer. Right. Yeah, you it probably should have been you also in retrospect. studied <laughs> modern languages though, didn't you? I did. What? I studied French and Spanish. Right. I don't speak them very well now, but I did. It has actually been incredibly useful to have a background in language when you specialise in words and working with words every day. Can you explain that? Because I, I, that's actually one of the questions I had. Was it, was it useful? Yeah. Uh, it's, I think it helps with understanding the meanings and the roots of words. I mean, we often go back to Latin for naming, mm -hmm. um, even if we're making words smushed together from two halves of a Latin word. God, I can't think of specific examples of where it's been useful, but I guess it's just a more complete understanding of language and how it works has been good yeah understanding structure and, yeah yeah and, to and an extent how, how structure changes over different languages yeah yeah god i don't have that much of an in-depth knowledge anymore but yeah i guess i i'm just i loved studying languages because i found it deeply interesting and i think one of the most fun things you can do is go out to a pub in spain or france and get really drunk and speak spanish like you're a freaking fluent in it it's so fun like at least you're not speaking french no <laughs> that's um, when you know you're getting really confused yeah and we have a couple of well one lovely french designer at re and every time i get too drunk just trying to speak french it's the best time to practice it's so good so confident. <laughs> i was speaking fluent french last night unbelievable <laughs> so growing up and young what attracted you to writing, creative writing? Well, I was just fairly good at English. My dad was my English teacher at school for my whole school career. And I was just... You had to be good at English. I had to you? be. And do you know what the funny <laughs> thing was? I always thought that writing well was just something everyone could do. I honestly thought that. And it wasn't until I left uni, because I really, I mean, I didn't excel at uni, I wouldn't say, but I did learn some very good lessons about 
you know that the, the scare, the horrible, horrible scariness of having to share your creative work with other people. That's what I learned at uni because when you write bad poetry <laughs> and then you have to show it to a group <laughs> of 15 other students who can critique it, it's awful. It's just the most horrific feeling in the world and getting that over with when I was like 18 and kind of understanding that that's not the end of the world has been massively useful in my career because obviously now, you know, you have to share your creative work every day and that's actually something that's really personal to you and just to get over that kind of hump of, you know, that doesn't reflect poorly on me if people don't like my creative work and I can stand up and argue for it and I can actually make it better and all those sort of things which are critical skills that people who work in creative industries need, I feel like that's the one thing I took from uni. I didn't do particularly well. And then when I left, I was kind of, oh, I just did a creative writing degree. What the hell am I going to do with my life? And so I literally applied for every single job that had writing in the job description. Right. Did you pick ones that were written particularly terribly? And no. you thought, I could just have your job. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I did think that at one point, that you could just write recruitment ads and you could do them much better. But, no, I ended up getting the perfect job, which was working as an editorial assistant for a magazine. And because I was naturally a good writer, I ended up just doing all their writing because they were a very shoestring operation and I was paid 30 grand a year to get yelled at by angry clients. <laughs> and I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And so, at some point in that editorial hellhole that I was in. No, it wasn't a hellhole. Scrap that bit. It was a very hard job. It was in North Ride, even if you know where that was. Yeah. It was like an hour bus ride to get paid 30 grand. To, like, <laughs> hey, my I'd, wife's not listening. That's where she works currently. Oh, I know. Sorry. <laughs> She's sorry. currently driving home from North yeah, Ride. It's a, it's a long way. We used to get mm. the bus. Yeah. Yeah, and we just used to just drink heavily at lunch because, you know, it was just really, it was a really long bus ride. Yeah. It's a really long bus ride. Obviously, you know this. Oh, no, I've never been there. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually fine. I go all the time now because Optus is out there as well. And all right. it, it's, it's much better now. And at some point in that, you know, I was there for two years, one of the girls left and she went and got this job as a copywriter. And, I was, and she was like getting paid heaps of money. And I was like, copywriter, what sort of, you know, what is that? I ha didn't even know until this point. And then I discovered advertising and just thought advertising was definitely the coolest industry you could possibly work in and just did everything I could to get a job as a copywriter. And in the end, that girl who'd left to go to the agency, she got me a job at the small agency where she worked. And um, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And do you still love it? I do. Yeah, I love writing. I, I would... Uh, yeah, it's funny now because, you know, you move into a role where you're not supposed to be on the tools, you're supposed to be directing and that's always the challenge to kind of get out of the day-to-day -day and kind of have that overarching kind of view but every time I have to sit down and do copywriting I still really enjoy it yeah it's definitely yeah love it what is it that you love about it I guess it's just the creative challenge of making something that's perfect you know that impresses yourself and that answers the brief really well I like reading over something that I've written that is perfect and spot-on I love seeing when you know, you've got a beautiful design that the copy just works perfectly with it and that looks amazing and is clever, is, is also an awesome thing. Yeah, and I get lots of satisfaction from that. Are you mentoring people currently at Ray? Mentoring. I guess in, in your craft, in this craft yeah, that you love yeah, so yeah, much. Yeah. Is oh, there yeah. a young Shannon somewhere? Is there a young Shannon? Oh, <laughs> God. No, not, not, not exactly. Not quite. But over the 
last three years we've built up the verbal identity team yeah, so I, I did well at re and i enjoyed it and fit in really well and i kept getting promoted to all these different roles like first i was you know started as a senior writer and then i was copy director and then i was head of verbal identity but i had there was no one else it was just me gradually getting promoted to manage right. myself uh, <laughs> so you're just leapfrogging the outside of the old chart <laughs> And it was like, where do we put Shannon? Oh, she's over here. Oh, yeah, she's very senior now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Doing the same thing, guys. That's great. Um, but thankfully, over the last two years, we've hired... There's a team of writers now. There are three of them. And they're all amazing. It's a great team. And it's so nice to have other writers there to kind of have your kind of writing conversations and bitch about the designers, which we don't do. Perfect. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah. Absolutely. So there's definitely... Um, the writing room. Yeah, there's more of a vibe now that writing is really important. It's not just get Shannon to do it or, you know, see what Shannon thinks. There's, there's a team and they're great. We wanted to talk about your word form piece, which you did. So word form obviously is Jack Musset's sort of side project, I guess, uh, that explores, I don't know, how, how, how would you describe it? Design and words process in, in, a, in a different form. So it's not your t- sort of typical form. I guess what's interesting for us in this industry is we like pretty pictures and colors and Mm. things like that and it is a nice escape where it's black and white or gray you know text and it's just one word and then it's just what that person has written down so it's you can't makes it very difficult to hide behind the pretty pictures and the pretty Mm. layouts that we do like to hide behind and it feels really unedited and just Mm. very authentic yeah Yeah. i really love that Mm. that website it's beautiful so what what was that experience like uh it was actually for me quite stressful not stressful, but that idea of putting out something to your peers, it's, I find... Especially on your topic, because your topic yeah, was ego. Ego. And also being a writer, I wanted it to be really good. And I always find that when I want something to be really good, I try too hard. And then it goes really horribly, horribly <laughs> wrong. And then I'm just left in this... Um, and I enjoyed writing that. And it's funny because I've written you know, several other articles for industry publications, but the... I got so much feedback on that one because all the really? designers read it. Yeah, right. designers came out of mm. woodwork I haven't seen in years, yeah. commenting on my piece and saying, "How are you going?" and <laughs> "Who was that? Who were you talking about?" and yeah. Oh, right. So it was really it was a good experience, and I was very I was happy with the, the final product, and and I enjoyed doing it because it was you don't often sit down and write about yourself. Yep. You know, like right. it's often you write an article and it's about, oh, this is how, this is the design industry and how I feel about this, or this is this initiative that we're doing and that's how I feel about this. But it's actually like personal reflection. So it turns into almost like therapy, which I feel it, like this yeah. podcast would probably turn into for people as well. You know, <laughs> yeah. you, this mm, is an opportunity exactly. to talk about yourself and how you feel about things. Yeah. And when, when you, you can do that, you just yeah. kind of rattle off. And before you know it, you're like, can I actually say that? Or, okay, I should tone that bit down or something. Because, I mean, even in the um, piece uh, about ego, you actually say towards the end, it's like, oh, I, I got a little bit dark there. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it always gets dark. I yeah. always get, yeah, I think I, I, I do think about things deeply and particularly ego. I mean, because it's always a topic of conversation in design, you know, it, sorry, not in design, but in, in our industry or yeah. with people you've worked with or this person's got a big ego or that person. And I, I often think that we misunderstand what ego means and often you're just stereotyping people by saying they have a big ego. And that's why I was kind of like when I got to the, at the end of that piece, I actually was thinking, I've got a pretty big ego. <laughs> but I don't know if people would say that necessarily about yeah. me. Mm. Yeah, which is interesting. I really liked, um, I mean, it was a really nice, honest and direct piece. And in it, you talked about this idea of uh, reaching a turning point. 
when your sense of self became less fragile mm. and less dependent on others' opinion and you started to take work less seriously. Mm. Can you talk more about what that turning point was like? It's funny because it was definitely... Because, as I mentioned, when I started at RE, I didn't really have an idea of the branding industry. I didn't. I thought it was really cool mm-hmm. and I thought everyone in it was really cool and I was a little bit intimidated by them all, I guess. And so I always wrote to impress people, you know, to impress... Like, all I cared about was certain people's feedback that if they thought it was bad, it was bad. And if they thought it was good, it was good. Mm-hmm. And now I can look back and go, actually... I wish I'd argued some of those points a bit harder because they were wrong. <laughs> and it wasn't until, you know, you kind of do something for a while and you actually get confidence in it that you kind of turn around and realise that my opinion and my experience actually outweighs a lot of other people's opinions and experience because there is this... It's often the loudest voice in the room that gets the most attention mm-hmm. um, and once you realise that, you can kind of work with it or work around it so was that a thing that slowly grew in you or was it almost a a wake-up call that happened suddenly you know I didn't even notice it until I worked the ego piece oh really yeah because you know it's (laughs) like you do a little bit of self-reflection yeah and you kind of maybe you I, I think that it was a true narrative of my kind of personal development as a writer and as a you know branding specialist writer but at the time, I wouldn't have called it that. I would like at the time it was it was still. I just as soon as I got into the industry, I loved it and wanted to stay in it. So I guess that there wasn't it wasn't necessarily as dark or as negative as I potentially presented that. Like my husband read that piece and he was like, "I didn't know you were that depressed when you started to read." I was like, "No, I wasn't." <laughs> Got to save Maybe, a copy for yeah. therapy a little bit later. <laughs> Maybe you just dramatise things a little bit for print, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Makes so, it a more compelling story. Yeah, completely, right? You need to make a narrative. <laughs> you also talked about that you at one point tried to have a nine-to-five job. So that idea that you oh, yeah, that had somewhere that was well-paid and finished on time, but you also said it, it felt like you are throwing half your life down the toilet. Yeah, yeah. I worked at, um, I, yeah, I worked at Three Mobile. As I, so the job I got when I first became a copywriter was at an agency and then that agency wasn't doing particularly well at the time and I was made redundant because I was the last, I was the most junior person, not because I was bad, they said. And, um, <laughs> and I was panicked, like, you know, it was horrible. Being made redundant is a horrible, horrible feeling because it's all about your sense of self, right? Yep. Um, and I'd finally become this person that I wanted to be. I was this copywriter, it was great. And then I was just like, shit, what am I now? Um, and so I took the first job and it was this job as a... It was actually, I actually managed the brand language guidelines for 3Mobile, but I had no fucking idea what brand language guidelines were. (laughs) And I was not empowered at all to police them around the organisation. So I literally just updated this massive PDF of things you could say and things you couldn't say at 3. Like it was literally, it was really prescriptive. It was like, we say mobile, not phone. They would right. never say phone. It's like, okay. And then I had to go Because you wrote it down one day. No, because somebody wrote it down before me and I had to <laughs> oh, police it. And right. everyone kept arguing with me. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just <laughs> and I literally, like, I hardly did any work. I was not busy at all. And then I just did, I sat there and I did my freelance work and got paid and sometimes did a few jobs that people were happy with. So then they were like, Shannon's doing great at that verbal lo- <laughs> guideline she's managing. Is anyone saying phones? No. <laughs> no. Good job, Shannon. <laughs> Like, it's so you can ridiculous. clock off whenever it's so you ridiculous. like. <laughs> That's great. Um, so thankfully I managed to, to leave that place. So what about people in a similar situation now? Would you have any advice for them? Honestly, if you're a half-decent writer, 
get out there because there aren't that many around, you know. And I think I know that, you know, we, we struggle to find people who, will, who can do brand writing. There is a big difference between that kind of conceptual, you know, copywriter, art director teams you get in advertising and that really focused, nuanced brand writing that we do. Get into it because there are jobs and they're crying out for people to do good writing, right? And, and what about uh, designers that want to in, improve their writing, perhaps? That's just a funny one because I always encourage the designers to put... Ne- like, we've never put Lorem Ipsum in headlines or anything like that because it's, it's just a waste of space to always have a go. And some of the designers, which I think is amazing, have this great attitude where they just keep throwing lines, you know? It's like, if you're like, that's terrible. Okay, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> and I think that that's the right attitude to have is yep. just... Because I, if, I, if someone puts a line in a, in a layout and I'm just like, that's a freaking awful line, take it out, you know, in a, in a nice kind of way, but I, we'd never just let something slide like that. So it's the people that can keep putting, having another go, having another go, having another go, mm. that get there in the end, right? Because that's how you do it anyway, right? There's that quote that um, I'm not even sure who said it, but um, in order to write, you need to write. Yeah, so yeah, yeah you need just, to keep trying, yeah. keep trying, keep trying. It's just exactly what we we're talking about before with putting your creative work out there. If you put it out there and people hate it, edit it, try again. You know, if you have that attitude where you failed and you're going to give up, well, then you're not, you shouldn't be working in a commercial creative environment, right? Because everyone's going to have an opinion, aren't mm. they? Mm. So it's been a while since we've had someone from Re on the show. And I think the last person was Chris McLean, who had just moved from Interbrand when we actually talked to him. So he didn't really, he couldn't really tell us about how RE and MNC kind of work together. And I guess the question we're interested in is, is, is do you collaborate a lot or is, do you operate completely separately? Um, more and more we're being asked to collaborate quite closely from our clients. Um, so there are shared clients acro- that, that are a few retained clients across MNC and RE. Combank is one of them. And with that client, we collaborate very closely with the agency. We've just recently done a kind of bit of a brand sprint uh, where the agency was involved in the day-to-day kind of feeding back, making sure that the brand could could do what they needed it to do in market. So it was, I wouldn't say it was an easy process at all because we're not used to working that way and advertising agencies by nature want ab- want a lot of freedom to be able to express their ideas and branding agencies want attribution and beautiful design and something that looks gorgeous and finding the middle ground between those two points is really challenging particularly when you know in an agency there's not that we we, we would like to say we have quite a flat hierarchy at re but you know there's a clear who's the creative director who's the design director who's this who's that um and when you've got you know you've got your advertising creative directors you've got your branding creative director you've got your client you've got quite a lot of people feeding in and didn't you write an article about ego somewhere here (laughs) i'm not yeah it's um it's it's the the relationship management piece is the is the real challenge right and to get that right and obviously the work follows and I think that that's something I've found being a creative director that if that actually maintaining your relationships with people is almost your number one priority right and right. the client there's the client but then there's also the agency and then there's also the designers in your team and I actually was listening to Chris's podcast with you guys 
just last night to get across what he'd said. And he said that he had felt that being creative director was a lot of trying to keep people happy. Like you've got to keep the client happy and you've got to keep this person happy and you've got to keep that person happy. And that's doubly challenging when you're kind of working with, you know, that kind of collaboration with the agency, I would say. One of the things we did want to talk about was this idea of um, the 50-50 by 2020. Yes. Which you actually said um, is, is more than just a catchy soundbite, but it is an incredibly catchy soundbite. Yeah, it's a, yeah, that's an MNC special. They love a catchy soundbite. Oh, really? Yeah, 50-50 <laughs> by 2020, that's gender equality in the advertising industry, in, sorry, within MNC by 2020. And you launched it at the 3% conference, and I just wanted to ask, can you talk about what the 3% conference was? Okay, so gender equality is obviously a big issue in the advertising industry, and, and MNC knows it's a big issue, and they're not particularly good at it, but at least they're kind of willing to get out there and say they're not particularly good at it. Um, the 3% conference was absolutely amazing because they got Cindy Gallup to come out to the agency and she is like, you, you know Cindy Gallup, right? Um, she came out and she gave a talk to the whole agency in front of all the executives and everyone and kind of ripped them to shreds, right? Wow. And they look, you know, and, and good on them because she said some things that really took a lot of phrases you hear around the agency to task, you know, that we can't, we can't find good female talent. All these kind of cliches that you hear and just kind of said, not good enough, guys. That was a, it was a good opportunity to, you know, I hate this phrase, to get a conversation started about diversity and equality. And the 3% conference was good because, uh, because MNC was a sponsor, we had the opportunity to, you know, do a keynote presentation and, and all that went along with that. And I guess the challenge for me as one of the few female creative leaders within the MNC group is how do you make sure that your involvement and the company's commitment is, is genuine and ongoing and not what is very common in the advertising world, just another bit of spin because the Me Too movement and, you know, equality, it's a big ticket item at the moment. It's fashionable. Mm, It's fashionable, right? So it was was kind of like a bit of – a little bit of soul-searching around that because we had this W&C, which stood for Women in Creative, and it was all about kind of shining a light on the amazing creative women at M&C. We all, like, had our, you know, professional photography done. We had the website up that said how our career path had, you know, how we'd got to, um, you know, work at this agency. And there's a mentorship... There's, there's all these initiatives that are going to come off the back of that. And there were women within M&C that didn't want to be a part of that because they didn't feel that they wanted to be this showpiece for the agency. Right. Um, and then as a creative leader, you kind of have that question, do I want to put my face to this and this be my thing? And in the end, I kind of decided that, you know, it's better to do something than not do something. And I did really enjoy it. And as I mentioned, yeah, Cindy Gallup, she says, she said some really great things. Can you give us an example? Of I've just, that's why I kind of trailed off weirdly at the end of that sentence. <laughs> she was talking about women in leadership and she said, you know, there's, this, there's a really common scenario where you've got this board of men and you'll have one woman on the, on the board, you know, and, and you see it at, at a lot of agencies, at, you know, MNC, you see it at lots of places. Yeah. And just um, bus- a lot of businesses in general, I think. Yeah, yeah. completely. Like global global yeah, you know, you've got yeah. the diversity box ticked. And she says, but when you have that <laughs> scenario, the alien organism has to adapt to its environment, right? <laughs> so that woman on the board is actually, a, is actually kind of like surrounded by 
you know. So she has to, and you often hear this criticism yeah. of women in those leadership positions. Oh, she's acting like a man, or she, you know, she just goes along with what those men say. But that actually, that woman is actually in an incredibly difficult position there to be yeah. constantly be the voice that is kind of raising the flag or arguing this or arguing that. So that really stuck in my head. And there was one other thing she said, which I wish I could remember. It might come back to me. Anyway, you might need to move on. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about that, the um, WNC a little bit as well, because obviously it's, it's quite a nice little flip of MNC. Yeah, it was nice. Um, <laughs> did you come up with that? Uh, it was actually Sharon Edmonston, who is the uh, great creative director at MNC. That was the flip, yep. The, the mechanic of how that worked and then we kind of worked together which is an example like for me an example of MNC and Re collaborating like absolutely amazingly Re kind of rolled out the brand of how that worked and you know we had a little motion piece and we had kind of we had everything actually we had notepads we oh, had really? EDMs <laughs> we <laughs> had bags. we were like everything is flipping <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah and and she's been actually kind of like really a driving force behind it so for international women's day we had a showcase of female directors that came in and showed their work at mnc so that all the people there who use directors could you know have actually broaden the pool and start using more women which i think is really awesome because it's actually something quite practical and pragmatic that we can do to kind of shift the ratio a little bit and get more female voices out there and is it about providing role models as well for yeah that was that was kind of the idea behind getting those faces of the women up there that that phrase that if you can see it you can be it yep um, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is true right and it also makes you think about your own career journey and and actually to kind of celebrate how far you've come you know yep. um, so that was that was that was a great time you talked a bit about in the um, I think it was the press release about how it was you wanted to make it bigger than MNC yeah. Is that um, something you're doing? Yeah, it is, actually, absolutely. So for the last event, we invited everyone from within the advertising industry. So, oh, great. Yeah, right. so it wasn't just limited to MNC at all. We had, like, all the kind of, you know, PR machine and overdrive to get absolutely everyone to come because that's it, right? It's for the whole industry. It's not just for MNC. And where where are you taking that next? Well, we've got to catch up this week. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, but internally, there feels like there's good momentum around it. So, um, it, well, the idea is that we're going to have mentorship programs and we're going to have more events and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Um, it's just mapping out exactly what's next. I'm not entirely sure. Who knows? Who knows? Stay tuned. <laughs> Watch this space. Yeah. Three years. <laughs> so speaking of role models, do you have a particular role model that you looked up to? I would say in my career, I, I guess one of the great things about there being quite a lot of creative director turnover at Re is that I've had the opportunity to work with lots of different people and learn from lots of different people, people who I think are actually really brilliant in their own way. And one of the things I always say, but we all know the Sydney design industry is incredibly small and I always kind of have tried to perpetuate my career to never make any enemies because you know that these people are going to come back Don't into your life at one point, right? I can't tell you the, num yeah. the number of people who have, I've worked with that come back as clients, wow, so many, that yeah. come back as colleagues, of course, all the time, right? So, I mean, it's more and more difficult to not make enemies as you get higher in your career, I would oh, really? say. Yeah, yeah, I think that you... Who have I upset today? Yeah, no, it's more that when I started out 
you know, it's easy to be everybody's friend when you're the copywriter in a sea of designers because yeah. everyone wants some of your time and you can help everybody and you can collaborate with everybody and get on with everybody. Well, as, as you said before, you're not even on the structure anyway. Yeah, exactly. So. You're just floating around. Like you could literally do nothing and no one would know. But everyone <laughs> seems to think you're busy all the time. Get a bit more freelance work done during yeah, the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I guess in terms of role models, I always look to people in my career that I couldn't have achieved got where I am without those people, right? People that who you've worked with at some point and have believed in you have come back to you and given you amazing opportunities that helped you get where you are, right? And Jason Little is definitely one person for me who's done that because we worked together when I was the first copywriting job for like six months. And years later, he rang me up and said, hey, you know, you should work at, at RE. And I mean, getting a job like that, which is just handed you on a plate, which turns out to be your dream job is pretty rare Mm -hmm. um so i've always made sure even after he left and you know after chris mclean moves on that you try to stay in contact with those people and you know remember the great value that those people brought to your career and how they helped you grow as a as a person and as a creative director because once you stop learning from other people is when you kind of may as well pack in your bags and give up right which segues nicely into we talked a little bit about mentoring before um, but particularly in the, in the idea of um, WNC, is there, a, is there a mentoring arm to that? There is. That is definitely when we first had the idea, one of the areas which obviously needs the most, if you want to get women into senior creative roles, you need the women to be coming in, in junior creative roles. The mentoring part of it, I mean, is yet to kind of take off, but is absolutely where we want to take the initiative because that's how you actually enact genuine change right because it's always been quite amazing you look at any design school and there's always far more women than there are guys Mm. but then it doesn't seem to translate into kind of those junior roles and midway roles is that true yeah i i would say every every education facility i know has majority women yeah when i had when i was doing professional development stuff like 60 40 it's so incredible that you don't that you see it so much in business that you hire people like yourself Mm. like so I do think that if you have that I I naturally go towards hiring women right so it just I don't know what it is but if you see yourself in someone and you can see their potential because you know I was once like that Mm. and it's easier if they're the same gender as you are and it's often not a conscious choice that you do it you can see their potential a little bit better you understand them a little bit better you 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 hire people who you want to hang out with right but then you need to also make a conscious choice that the next person I hire I have to say actually I can't hire a woman because what I want in the writing in the writing team is a diversity of thought right I want people that have different opinions on things I want people that aren't necessarily maybe in their 20s and and that so I think in order to get more women across the board you need to have more women in senior roles which is kind of that catch-22 right yeah I think we're at time we are Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks very much. To us. And um, how can people find you if they want to find out more about you? Do you live anywhere online? You you do, but it's not you. Oh, I'm actually a porn actress. I know, well, she's um, <laughs> she doc, Dr. Oh. Shannon Bell. Uh, she's a feminist who writes yeah. erotic vampire novels. Yes, yeah, there's a strong erotic bent to <laughs> Shannon Bell online. Yeah, so Google me. Yeah. Um, at work. <laughs> yeah, Google me at work. <laughs> Don't live anywhere online. Nowhere online? Twitter. Okay. Oh, Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a website? <laughs> oh, the brain stopped. Yeah, no, Shannon Z. Bell. Um, Twitter and Instagram. Great. But mainly Twitter because Instagram's just pictures of my kids. So go Twitter. 
And if anyone wants to find out more about WNC or the 50-50 by 2020? Go to the MNC Saatchi website. Fantastic. We'll put those in the show notes. And so, Matt, where can people find you? Um, Instagram. Cool, that's great. Um, and you can follow this show and more at AOS Design Radio. That's Thank it. you. Well. Thanks, guys.